Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Hey gang, welcome to today's episode of Blockhead, and it is a very special show indeed. Part two of our marathon-length interview with the great cartoonist, Seth. This episode is really what this show is all about. It's about good conversation among cartoonists, about comics, about cartooning, about the guests' work, obviously, and about life in general. And for me, this is just one of the best episodes ever, so I hope you're really going to enjoy it. Before we get to that, though, uh, don't forget about my Kickstarter, which is live now at greenscreencomic.com. If you you just head over to greenscreencomic.com, it'll take you right to my Kickstarter, where you can have a look at the project, which is a 36-page full-color comic book featuring Bella Dilemma, an actress who is lost in an alternate reality where every movie is a real world. That's greenscreencomic.com. There are a lot of great rewards, whatever level you contribute at, including a second comic book, Greenscreen number 00, the story of how it all began, sort of the backstory of this uh, fantasy, sci-fi, comedy adventure. The Kickstarter is up and running until September 2nd. Uh, So you have some time, but don't forget, greenscreencomic.com, whatever level you choose, is greatly appreciated. And hey, if it's not something for you, maybe it's something you can share on your Instagram feed or elsewhere. Tell some of your friends who you think might be interested in it. Head them over to greenscreencomic.com. That's a big help, too. So now, without further ado, uh, let's get to the show, Seth and myself in conversation. Don't let them fool you into what's what's supposed to be interesting or what is boring. And I keep that very closely at the heart of whenever I'm working on the idea of like, don't worry about the ideas of whether anyone will be interested in this or whether you should speed it up in the pace of how you're telling the story or whether you, it's like I believe strongly in in self-indulgence because it's really the only way you can determine what's interesting is by deciding what's interesting to yourself. Otherwise, you lose that connection to self, and 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 I hate to use the word now after we've spoken about it, but authenticity. You lose that yeah. connection to the essential self, and uh, you know, I, 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 one of the things that's interesting about the the impact of Cage on your work and your thinking um, is this idea that that he was very interested in chance, and as he called them, chance operations. You know, he had mm-hmm. this this process by which he threw the I Ching and uh, allowed, you know, the falling of the the sticks, I guess, that are part of the I Ching um, to determine his choices, you know? And it was very interesting um, to think about that and the way chance impacted his work um, and the way he was engaged in the moment, you know? Uh, it, it, you know, um, it's it's something, how do you think that connects to your own process or your own thinking is it something that that you um can connect to or is it something that you keep at a a distance 
No, I, I feel very connected to the idea. I think what we were talking about earlier, like how television operated when we were young, there's a yes. lot to do with that in my mind. It's like, how did the things you're interested in come into your life? And so much of it was by chance. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I could, I mean, ultimately life is built around chance. So yeah. almost anything you could pick that you're interested in came to you by sheer accident. Um, it might've been a friend you met who turned you on to something that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't have been there at that time. It could have been like that indeterminacy showing up at two in the morning while I was working. It's like, it's all chance in some way. Now, once something enters, there might be determination then to pursue something, to seek it out and process gets involved. But even that thing, what I was talking about earlier about being a collector, collecting is very much connected to chance. Isn't it? Yes. As a collector, I, I spend like an enormous amount of my time um, looking for things. So my wife, Tanya and I, we still go out like now that things are open again, we will too, out mm -hmm. to like antique malls and things like that all the time. And the real exciting thing about going through an antique mall is not looking for like some book you're looking for. It's looking for what you don't know is going to be there. Yes. The randomness of the experience. I think of them as like museums to the mundane. <laughs> like you find so much stuff that you wander through and you develop like this sort of history of 20th, 20th century consumerism and culture just by looking at stuff. You build up a kind of an archive and that stuff gets into the back of your brain and like everything you're taking in gets into your brain and in a kind of random way, ideas come together. So like you might have an idea in your head, like um, like the current book I'm working on now has kind of come together from several years of thinking about different things and then something sparks and then the ideas fall together. So it's like, I've been really interested in like, um, for example, like in the sort of the luxury culture of the aristocrats of the past. Mm. And then I'm also very interested in like, um, say, mythology at the same time. And then these are two elements that sort of like were floating around in the back of my brain as some kind of maybe there's a story in there somewhere, but I wasn't planning to put them together or anything. Mm -hmm. And then somehow or other ideas start to go, they, they, they mix up in that sort of centrifuge of your brain. And and they become something new. It's the only real way I feel like you create an idea is by juxtaposing things against each other. But you often don't actually pick the stuff you're juxtaposing. That stuff just sort of, it just accumulates. And if you get lucky, something interesting comes together out of it. it in part, it has to do with, with also being engaged enough and aware enough for those encounters to become meaningful. Absolutely. So you you have to be receptive, you know, to the. You have to be inquisitive too. You have to be exploring, um, yeah. because the culture gives you an awful lot, but for the most part, what it gives you is. I don't want to say it's like trivial or anything, because I don't really believe in the idea of trivial. But it gives you whatever is at the top of the pipe at the moment. Mm -hmm. So it's not really looking. All you're really getting is what's on the current TV shows or or what's the hot thing at the moment, or what's coming through your social media feed. And that stuff, I think, you know, you can see the ideas that are out there right now that are just totally informed by that culture. So like every once in a while, my wife will show me something. She'll be like, oh, look, somebody has turned the Greek statues into Star Wars figures. And I'll be like, I'll be like well, yes, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> you know, that's what people do right now. They mash things together in a really kind of predictable way. Mm -hmm. But um, And so, you know, ideas are forming all the time, but I think you do have to like kind of eccentrically follow things on your own 
so that you create your own wellspring of stuff to mix together. You know, it's as you were saying that I was thinking of, well, you know, the social media feed is doing exactly that. It's just feeding us all the time and it's sure. doing so without our participation. It is just there, you know, mm-hmm. and coming at you. And part of what we're also talking about is this idea of, you know, if you go out to an antique store or you go to a, a, a thrift store or to a, a flea market, you're you're now, you know, an active participant in constructing that which comes to you by, you know, being receptive to whatever happens to be on the table at the flea market or in an old used bookstore being aware and and engaging that's a, a participatory act it is and it's very important to i think the constructing of these you know these um collisions if you will you know of of uh, ideas concepts um feelings whatever um you know that's very different than you know just sitting on instagram and waiting for anything tagged comics to come your way you know that's true. I do think you have to be you have to be pretty participatory to create things. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is, there's another element in it that is like kind of the the negative side of this, or the um, to turn it around is that you may not have that much control over what you do with the stuff either. <laughs> like I've been noticing now as I'm getting old that the cartoonists of my generation, um, we all kind of have a certain way we do things, and um, it's generational. Mm-hmm. And I see the young cartoonists, how they do them. And it's, you know, they have a different approach and it's generational too. Sure. And if I was born now, I would probably tell stories in a very different way than if I was in the group that I came from. So like my group is all very interested in narrative yeah. um, because we were all kind of like trying to break out of like the earlier system of fantasy and and uh, short stories and stuff. So we all started working on like real life stories that were long stories. Uh, young cartoonists now are not interested in that stuff. Half the stuff they're doing is very, very fantasy based or I mean, a lot of it seems to me like it's it's an outgrowth of like v- growing up with video games. Oh, I agree. And it's really good work. I mean, I'm a, I genuinely sure. enjoy the work of the young cartoonists going on now, the good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like the exact opposite approach almost to like what my generation does. And, sure. and, and they, that's who they are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're each a product of our peer. You know, that's one of the things I've I've thought about, you know, outside of of, you know, ourselves as artists and whatnot. But just thinking about, for example, as as people, you know, my parents are part of the past now and I kind of see them as people of the mid 20th century. You know, Mm. that they are part of that history. They are part of that world. They are inseparable from that period of time. And I know that that's true of myself you know, and my wife as well, that we are part and parcel of, you know, late 20th century, early 21st century culture. This is the era we we are, you know, if Arthur Conan Doyle was writing a, a story about my wife and I, uh, as as whatever we were, as artists, we would be at the turn of the century when Sherlock Holmes was at his peak, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? It's, it's like we are people who are of our era and... You know, there's no escaping that. So we're formed by. And it's much more apparent as you get older. Yes. As you see the culture change around you. Mm -hmm. And it's like the the culture of today is not the culture I'm familiar with. Right. And you recognize that your your era is being judged by the current culture negatively for the most part. (laughs) You recognize that like 
how do I put this? People are a product of their era. And the people right now will be judged by the future. And the Mm. future people will look back at whatever, you know, the prevailing thoughts are right now and will judge them as as like, I can't believe people thought like that. Just (laughs) like this generation is doing when they look back. But I think what you have to recognize is, and this is often true if you think of your own parents, is they may have had the wrong opinions in, in our current thinking. But would they have had the wrong opinions if they were born now? Are they good people or do they, are they just people who, who are products of their own time? Or mm-hmm. are you a bad person because you're a product of another time? Mm-hmm. So I genuinely believe that like we have to be reasonable judging the past, which is not to expect it to be the present. It doesn't mean we approve of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that a lot of times people think I have this golden idea of the past, but I don't want to live in the past. I'm I'm very interested in the past, but I'm a product of this time, of the time that I grew up in. Um, I wouldn't be happy in 1940. I'd be shocked at the social elements oh. of 1940. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I, and but you also have to recognize that, like, take a good person from that time and put them in our time, have them grow up here. They'll be just like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it's you know, if you take a caveman, a Cro-Magnon man, and raise it from a baby here, he'd be just like everybody else. It, <laughs> The era is is the uh, the powerful thing. People's ideas are shaped by the time they're in, and not always in a good way. Yes, yes, and I I think too it's important to when we and again I'm I'm somebody who's also very interested in the past and how the past impacts you know the the lives we live now. Um, you know, it's a pa- it's part of seeing the past as sort of an evolution. This is a story that's being told and evolving, and yeah. understanding that. Um, if you look at, you know, in a very broad general way, as you, if you look at humanity and civilization as a child that's evolving, I mean, really, in the history of this planet, we're, you know, our civilization is only, you know, what, yeah. 10,000 years old and, and modern civilization, much less than that. Um, you know, it's a child evolving. And as it evolves, and if we are indeed, you know, the eyes and ears of the planet, um, you know, the, the consciousness of the planet, it is evolving as well. And as time goes on, it becomes, you know, much more aware, much more sensitive, much more self-conscious, much more, all of these things that go along with the evolution of an individual. If you, if we think of the planet as a kind of individual. I think one of the complicated problems of, of how we view human culture and history is that we've mixed it up with the idea of progress, like change and progress. There's a lot of change going on all the time, but it's not always progress. I mean, we move in so many different directions, like things get better and they get worse. I mean, when I was growing up through the 80s into the 90s, I really looked at the culture as a series. I thought we were going through an evolution of progress. I thought people's social attitudes are getting better. Um, In the last 10 years, I've had a shocker to realize that um, it's not a straight line progress. I think we definitely have taken a turn backward. Right. I feel like I'm shocked to see the level of racism and and um, uh, this, like outright hatred that is openly being displayed now that mm-hmm. wouldn't have, people wouldn't have talked about in like 1990. And I don't think it's because people were better in 1990. I think people were keeping their mouth shut. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I literally think the computer opened the door to everybody starting speaking. And boy, I didn't want to hear what they had to say. 
No, uh, there's terribly yeah. ugly thoughts, you know, that are expressed. Yeah. And this is not necessarily like, so it's not been a straight line of progress, but I do think that things do slowly get better. I think like humanity's making positive choices, but but I think we, you know, this whole process of change is extremely complicated. And um, I don't think that's why you can look at the past and you certainly can't look at the past and say like, oh, that was the golden age. There's no golden ages, but the present isn't a golden age either. They're going to look back on this era in, as like a mess, just like every era is a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a mistake. I mean, there are people who like look back and they, they kind of laugh at the past. Like, can you imagine living in 1920? But if you really lived in 1920, this era would look horrendous to them. Mm-hmm. This this would be like uh, some sort of living hell we're living in. But, <laughs> but, you know, we've created a culture we're comfortable with. People are used to like what's going on right now, like with this incredible cult uh, information culture that's, you know, like constantly pressuring you. They're used to it. Yeah. Um, if we went back to like 1910 or something, we would probably be literally shocked at the slow quality of life in comparison. Or right. maybe we'd be surprised it's faster than we thought. I don't know. Well, you know, uh, it's it. You can, you know, make a connection to films of the past. I mean, uh, the the way in which films are made now, the speed with which cuts are made between scenes or images is, is so much faster, even than you know, um, with the advent of television. You know, that started this process of yeah. of fast cutting in films and whatnot, and the level of of noise and action that pervades a lot of popular films and cinema now compare that to filmmaking in the you know 20s 30s 40s it's very different pace and i think that speaks to the pace of you know how information came to people at within that era and what they were used to within that period of time an audience today uh, an audience that hasn't experienced or grown up with those films um you know uh, finds a great deal of impatience with them you know because you imagine i mean like those i'm not sure who invented the cross cut but the first filmmakers pretty early i mean who said like i'm going to cut from this scene to something happening somewhere else Mm -hmm. that was like a radical decision yeah and but here of course there's not a single person who watches modern films that would even think about that for a second we understand the language of film Mm -hmm. innately and from like 1850 and tried to show them a modern film, it would probably be complete surrealism to them. They yeah. wouldn't understand a single thing that's going on besides, you know, language and culture. Just the way a story is told would be perplexing. Um, but, you know, you learn a language because, you you know, you swim in it. Um, yeah. If we went back to like, you know, the 1700s or something, and then if you saw the life of like a shepherd or something, we wouldn't understand how somebody could stand there all day without any distraction. Um, I mean, human beings, they are, they live in the era they live in. There's a lot. I, I want to talk to you about your, your own work and, and some of the much of what we're talking about here, I think is interesting in relationship to your work. I'm wondering as we talk about, you know, language, mm-hmm. the language of, of film or the language of popular culture, the language of comics would an audience say from the 1940s understand or appreciate you know a work like uh good life or or george sprott um would yeah, that be something sure. that i mean comics uh, is a funny language on some levels it's still pretty basic mm-hmm. 
I like to think that like the language of comics that we're using now would still be recognizable to a person of the 1940s, but they might be perplexed at why you'd even want to use the comics language to try to tell a more complicated story. Mm. I mean, it'd be like, it's probably like the way I first reacted when somebody told me that they felt video games could be an art form. Um, my first reaction was like, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> um, and I don't think I, I still haven't seen it cause I haven't been looking, but, um, but I do think, um, the comics language is an extremely complex language, but it's still kind of in its infancy. Yeah. I mean, when we think about it, we're talking about a hundred years or so, um, since the newspaper comic strip, um, yeah, about as old as film, maybe a little older than film. If you go back to its, its real progenitors. Sure. And in many ways, comics has only been like really up for grabs as an artistic medium since like the, the 70s. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's like and people that you can you can pull out some examples of people who are trying beforehand. But but they're kind of like the, um, the you know, the exceptions that prove the rule um, since like the underground cartoonists, it's been kind of an uphill fight the whole time of people trying to use the language in more and more complex ways. And I think it can hold. I think it's a it's a language that can hold the content too. I think that was an original argument. Can comics even tell a sophisticated story? And I think they can. Well, uh, obviously, you know, and and I mean, work such as as Clyde fans is just an example of that, you know, um, because the construction of it is not linear, um, and the themes that it examines are, um, you know, meditative. Um, they're they're sedate in relationship to you know the classical genre story or adventure story and and they're also very personal and so you know when we talk about the work that you're doing or other uh graphic novelists of the era are doing you know we are talking about a more personal vision which is in contrast you know to the to the the birth of comics as a a commercial medium and as a um a medium an industrialized medium you know yeah it's a lot like photography and film mm-hmm. I mean, that they were create as as mediums it took a long time for them to get legitimacy they were considered you know purely commercial but i think you know when you saw that a, a certain beachhead of good works appeared people were willing to change their mind you'd be hard pressed to find anybody nowadays who would say that film or photography couldn't be artistic mediums um, I think comics was, it's been, you know, that's only a recent turnaround. Um, when I was, I remember in the eighties talking to people about making comics as art and it was just an, a totally absurd idea. Oh yeah. I think it really didn't like pick up speed until like maybe the year 2000 when people started to, even though there had already been a handful of really great works, um, there wasn't enough of a beachhead. A beachhead has been established now where people are willing to accept that a comic can be like an adult work of art, but oh. I don't think the battle's been won. I actually think, if anything, it might things might be getting worse again. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I feel like the graphic novel mm-hmm. about ten years ago uh, was making some really great strides. And what mm-hmm. I mean by this is, I don't think that like it's not like the old man talking about young people don't know what they're doing sort of thing. It's more about the commercial um, marketing of the graphic novel. I feel like the graphic novel was, you know, it was like there were artists putting out work that was getting good attention. And this led to kind of a rush in the publishing world to say, like, oh, we should open a graphic novel division. Mm -hmm. A lot of publishers started putting out graphic novels. 
But, you know, sadly, there's been a kind of a de-evolution. A lot of the new graphic novels that are coming out are market-driven. They're young adult novels. They're um, biographies of, like, Amelia Earhart or, you Mm -hmm. know, I feel like they're they're editorial-driven. And it's like, I would say that of all the, you know, a lot of the graphic novels coming out now feel to me like that there's a publishing company that felt there was a need they could fill. Mm -hmm. Libraries are like, oh, you know, kids love graphic novels. And they'd be like, oh, well, that's great because we've got uh, several graphic novels coming out right now that'd be perfect for your YA market or whatever. Right, right. Well, I do think there's still great, every year there's great graphic novels coming out. But I don't feel like, it doesn't feel so... um, potent as it did about 10 years ago where i felt like it was you know an artistic medium that was like breaking through i'm starting to feel like the good work is getting lost on the end with a lot more of the crap on the top well i guess this is in some sense what happens with every art movement to a certain degree um you know it becomes uh assimilated and commodified right and um product of economic decisions as opposed to aesthetic ones um that often happens it's it's you know it is difficult to find i mean i think there's still great stuff being done obviously Uh, but i think you gotta you know again participate in the search for it and cut the wheat from the chaff is the old that's always been the case i guess it's i'm a i got a little disappointed because i felt like the promised land was coming Uh uh-huh Saw so many, and I and I still see. Uh, there's an enormous number of talented young cartoonists right now turning out good work. Right. I imagined maybe a bit more of a world where the graphic novel was entirely associated with the idea of like literature in capital letters. And it seems probably it's it's the commercial roots of it are winning again in my mind. So we'll see. I mean, they'll always. The only reason comics are even an art form to begin with is because commercially it became like uh, antiquated. And when any medium, any popular medium becomes unpopular, it sort of falls into the hands of artists. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. We pick up the remnants, I guess. Yeah, yeah, Um, exactly. You know, but there was this idea, and I think, you know, that certainly was inspired by the underground cartoonists that that our generation in the 70s uh, and 80s picked up on was the idea you could do something with this material more than what is being done now. Absolutely. You know, that push forward, whether it's through uh, a kind of literary approach or um, a more, you know, visually oriented approach in regard to that's less literary, if you will, more uh, tied it's very to- interesting as a medium you know like comics really has like it has a common i mean it's so basic that it's a combination of words and pictures yep. which is like really vital and essential and you can just do things with it that you can't really do with anything else and now for a message from our sponsor hey gang time for the seventh inning stretch get yourself a drink and nosh if you will and while you're doing that i'd like to tell you a little bit about my latest project green screen which is a kickstarter now at greenscreencomic.com Green Screen is a 36-page full-color comic book. It's a fun comedy fantasy adventure for readers who love movies, Doctor Who, Rick and Morty, and Mad Magazine's early comic book parodies. 
Hollywood film star Bella Dilemma and her backstage companions have been cast adrift aboard their movie set spaceship and pulled into the Cineverse, an alternate dimension where every movie ever made is a real world. Now they're about to crash land on an alien planet that looks eerily like a much-loved animated film from the past. Ever wonder what happens to movie characters after the credits have rolled? Did Scarlett O'Hara win back Rhett Butler? What did Charlton Heston find beyond the Statue of Liberty? Did Snow White and her prince really live happily ever after? Green Screen has the answers. This Kickstarter has lots of great reward tiers, one of which is a second comic book, Green Screen Number 00, the origin story that tells how it all began. There's stickers and magnets and prints and t-shirts at a variety of different contributor levels. This Kickstarter is available until September 2nd, 2021. The books are complete and the files are at the printer just waiting for your support to give the go-ahead. Be sure to check it out before September 2nd, 2021. Thanks for listening and I hope to see you at Kickstarter at greenscreencomic.com. We now resume our regular programming, already in progress. Yeah. Well, I was working on, just yesterday, I was working on uh, this new graphic novel I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, doing this sequence where I have, like, it's very narrated. And um, and there's people talking directly to the camera, to use, like, film terms. And I was like, I couldn't really do this in any other way and hold the audience's attention in the same way. There's something really uh, visceral about like having a picture talking at you that you could do it in film, but people don't do it much. They've decided sort of that you shouldn't just have talking heads talking at you unless it's a documentary. And um, you certainly can't do it in a novel in the same way. Um, You can, but there'd be something kind of boring about just cutting to someone and now you have two pages of a person talking directly at you as if it's like uh, in a documentary. It's like there's something about that you can control the language of pictures to to like draw the eye through the page that makes it a very seductive medium for telling stories that are actually really um, dry and mm-hmm. slow and like that you would have a harder time telling in other established mediums. Yeah. Hard. Because comics were known for like their fantasy imagery, but they're very, very good for the opposite. Uh, it's very interesting, and I, I totally agree with you. Not that I would ever be able to do anything like what you do. I, it's totally it, for some reason I can't do it, but I love what you do with it. And when I when I read through again, you know, not always to refer back to Clyde fans, but this is true in a lot of your work. Um, you know, when the 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 opening scene uh, with Abe walking through the fans' mm-hmm. building and talking directly to the the reader is not a scene that I could imagine at all in a film. Although maybe it could be interesting. Um, I don't think it could, but for some reason, people don't want to do that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, some experimental filmmakers, you know, yeah. will, you oh, know sure. or independent filmmakers will experiment with that. But they're usually relegated, you know, to those areas of wherever film culture is where that are very difficult for us to get to. Um, yeah, exactly. I just, you know, uh, uh, festivals or whatnot. But, you know, I mean, th- I love Lowe's passages in your work that have absolutely nothing happening in terms of of action you know what we would identify as traditional action i mean 
You know, the, the, I think one of the most beautiful passages in all of graphic noveldom, if you will, is Simon's flight at the end of, of Clyde Fans. It's, it's extraordinary. It's so beautiful and so resonant with, I think, meaning and with experience. And, and it is, it's one of the most exquisite things I've, I think I've ever encountered in a graphic novel. And yet, really, in terms of events, nothing really is happening. Yeah. You know, no. Increasingly, just, I feel like my whole language of comics has been a problem solving of how you use a visual language to tell stories that are not predominantly visual. Yeah. And that's like what's interesting about comics is that I think most people are attracted to them, including myself when you're a kid, because they're about drawing. Yeah. Writing things. Yeah. Then. Later on, I think what I came to recognize was that it was really more it's it, what's interesting about them is it's a visual language and the language yeah. is what's interesting is you'd use those pictures the same way that you would use symbols or the same way you'd even use the letters to make words. It's like you're combining things in a kind of um, in a very prescribed way to tell several layers of story. There's like obviously the, ver the the visual story right on the surface of how things are moving around. There's the the uh, textual 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 using the text mm -hmm. uh, element of the story, which is telling you something. And then there's a third kind of component that comes from putting them together in a certain way that makes like a, a different kind of language that's really about how the pictures operate to tell you things and the words operate to tell you things, but not the same things. Yes. Yes. They, they point you or they reveal different elements of, of whether it's the narrative or whether it's the experience, what is what of the environment um, of the moment, you know, they're telling you different things and, um, and both are revealing in, in different ways of different things. You know, uh, we learn a lot about, the history of Clyde fans in that first chapter, just through the images that you grant us. Um, exactly. And we learn different things from, from Abe's dialogue throughout. Uh, yeah, I started Clyde fans. I knew like one of the most essential elements of the story would be the interior of the play of the, the house and store. Yeah. And I knew like I was going to have to walk the characters through it many mm -hmm. times to create a kind of a texture that could only come from walking the characters through it over and over again. It's like I didn't want to uh, like describe it. I wanted to like have other things described while you're just taking in the sort of subliminally the maze of how the building operates. And that can only be done by just accumulating the pages of going through those of characters walking over and over again through the same spaces. Now you can certainly do that in a film. Um, and I, I can think of films that do it um something like you know last year at marion bad right but it's like it's not done often but it's really important it's like i always find it really important where or really interesting when you can tell like a couple of stories at the same time and comics can do that yeah absolutely you know a, a couple things come to mind 
in film, like oftentimes an audience will will become frustrated with a film like last year at Marion Bad. There, you know, mm-hmm. it's one of those films that appeals to a, a smaller connoisseurship, if you will, of film. Yeah, um, and it's part of film history. But a lot of people find it a really frustrating film um, because it's going around and around and around. And but you can do that in a comic. And I don't find it frustrating in that sense at all, because the idea of time and, you know, in reading is very different than the idea of time mm-hmm. in in film. Um, one of the things that I want, it's just a pragmatic question, but one of the things I wanted to know was, I know you've built, you know, this, this cardboard city of Dominion, and you seem to be mapping it out, you know, very, in a, in a very concrete way within mm-hmm. Clyde fans and I know you've actually made the buildings in cardboard and constructed the city did you work out the the Clyde fans building and you know do a floor plan uh and work it out you know beforehand as you set to to tell the story or is that something that you realized as you went along you needed to know how many floors there were how many rooms where they were how they were related to one another what was in them in 1990 you did it out like, but the the thing is, it's funny, is I worked it out in perfect detail before I started the comic, but I worked it out wrong. Um, <laughs> I mean, about halfway through the book, it, like I, I looked, took a closer look at my original plans and I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Um, these, these staircases don't operate properly between the floors. And ultimately, the inside of the building is bigger than the outside of the building. Mm-hmm. So it does have like real flaws in it. But it doesn't really matter ultimately right. because it is kind of like an unconscious floor plan you're taking in while you read the story. I don't expect anybody to really like think too hard about like where the hallways go, mm-hmm. but I expect them to be like unsurprised when they turn a corner and they're in the living room or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, just because they've been there a couple of times. Uh, but I do think that if anybody sat down and really mapped it out, they would see that I screwed up. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I can imagine, you know, like with Star Trek, I know there are a lot of, you know, fans who sit down and figure out the the Enterprise and all of that. But I can't imagine that, you know, uh, and not this is no, I think, deprecating comment about your work. It's just I can't imagine anybody doing that with this book. It's Um, unlikely, but you never know with fans. You know, (laughs) back when I was working on Good Life, If You Don't Weaken, um, it's got like, you know, cartoons from the New Yorker listed in there that are supposed to be in issues of the New Yorker. And this was pre-internet. And there was one guy who went to the library and like looked it up to see whether I was telling the truth or not, went and found old issues and compared the pages. Um, that's a rare bird. Um, but now with the internet, it's pretty easy to do a lot of research. So it's not as rare that someone might figure out if you're, if you're making something up. <laughs> it's interesting. So somebody could find out if Kalo was a an actual cartoonist or not well you know it's easier now yeah yeah but i think that's one of the interesting things about that particular book um is this idea that you present us with a character that's ostensibly you seth as a real character but seth is engaged in a a search a kind of detective novel if you will um wherein he's searching for a cartoonist who doesn't exist so in a sense the set you're presenting to us is not you it couldn't be because this this search never happened because this cartoonist never existed so 
you know, that whole connection between reality, what's presented to the world is ostensibly a kind of documentary or a real world story. And fiction is really kind of interesting the way that they rub up against one another. I feel like that book could only have been done when it was done. And that's because it was I was transitioning out of doing autobiographical stories. Mm-hmm. I feel like that process of using myself as the main character in an essentially fiction story occurred mostly because it was a transition. Mm -hmm. I think if I was doing a story like that now, I never would have even crossed my mind to use myself as the main character. I would have just dived in as straight fiction. But there was some process of like the, um, I recognized back then, one of the things about comics that really worked in that era was the idea that we were trying so hard to get away from fantasy that, um, people started doing autobiography as a way to do, you know, to get as far away from fantasy as possible. Straight, yeah. real life comics. And I was very much an advocate of that. And I think it just was a natural transition for me to continue using myself as the main character because I wanted it to feel real. Not because I wanted to promote any or put forward any kind of hoax. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to keep that sense that this is real. And yeah. that was the natural way I thought to do it. Um, I mean, everything's, it's funny, you know, I can't even look at that book. That book is so old to me and it feels weird and feels like it was done by somebody else. Oh, that's how you, you know, that's how you make work. You have to do the work and move on from it. Sure. And, and stylistically you've changed so dramatically since then. I mean, um, even since the beginning of Clyde fans, which was done, I guess, right at the, on the heels of, of good life, mm-hmm. um, when we look at the transition, Clyde Fans is almost like a compendium of your transition as a, a yeah. visual artist. Um, your your shapes have become much more specific uh, than they they were in the early work and in Good Life. Um, your choices, you know, are much more determined. I think your 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 line is much more definite than it was. Yeah, everything is it's, it's a process of coming to know who you are and coming to understand how the comic language works better too. I mean, I look at those early issues of Clyde fans and I can see lots of decisions that are kind of arbitrary, Mm. which I wouldn't make now. I mean, I was thinking in in the bigger kind of decisions, like like that first chapter of Clyde telling the story of having Abe talk directly to the audience was the decision. The other decisions of how he's moving around the building. I mean, I thought I was thinking things through, but now I look back at and I see like, these panels don't relate well to each other and I would never do things like that now, or these pages are poorly organized or, you know, there's a million choices I would make differently. Um, but you just have to let it go. Oh, sure. I mean, it'd be, it'd be, but it's also, I mean, one, on the one hand, you see that because you're the artist, obviously, mm-hmm. and when we encounter it as readers. I don't think that we're making the same critique of it that you are. We're just captivated by the story and, and it certainly carries, you know, me along, uh, as I'm sure it does anybody else who's reading it. Um, but it is interesting to me how your styles developed as the time goes on and things have become more definite, more graphic in their orientation that seem in a lot of, uh, in, a, in a big way to be informed by your experience as a graphic designer. Uh, yeah. You know, the, I mean, it's so beautifully done. Again, you know, going back to the use of, of shape and color, in Simon's flight at the end of the, the book, um, you know, it's it, you've really found a way of of simplifying and, and editing out unnecessary information to 
to great impact, I think, there. Well, that's very nice. Those really are the key words for me, too. I mean, I appreciate that because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm really trying to, like, it's less is more, for sure. I'm trying to, like, get things down to a kind of core of iconography and a, a, and a really careful way of how I'm planning the pages out now. Mm-hmm. It means, of course, that I would be less likely to do, like, to make sort of um, bolder choices I might have made in the past where you'd just be like, well, maybe now I'll just have a shot from, you know, down down below. And then and then the next panel will be seeing them from the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, I make decisions like that now because I'm trying to, in a much more prescribed way, to tell the story in a certain a certain pan. Uh, a certain pattern that makes it more rigid, but it feels more logical to me now. Uh, I mean, I guess you just, as you work in any kind of a system of simplification, it does tend to limit your options over time. It's interesting you say that. Um, it limits, it can limit your options, but I'm thinking now, I always, whenever I think about editing and, lim- uh, you know, limiting the choices of an artist, I always fall back on Mark Rothko. And okay, I think- sure. You know, about the the uh, the choices Mark Rothko made as a painter to simplify everything, his tools, his his language, his visual language, and yet it opened up this territory to him that was vast. You know, once he limited those options, he just you know the possibilities seemed to be endless. And you know, the other thing that strikes me in talking about editing and simplification in your work, it brings me back to Charles Schultz and the idea. And although you're doing this very, very differently, I would never say, you know, that that this is reflective of what Schultz does in the peanut strip and like visually, graphically. You're using a different graphic language, but at the same time, you're also, you know, going through this idea of less is more, re- reduction of what we see and what you use in order really to show us um, more of that world in a way, or Absolutely. open our minds to more of that world. When you mentioned Rothko, it made me think also of, do you know Mirandi? Mm-hmm. And I was Absolutely. thinking a perfect example of someone I, I really admire that he like, you know, focused so strongly his whole life on just those objects in the studio. What There's a perfect choice. Like, yeah. such a, a, it's like, I almost regret that like, I can't boil the work down that much. I mean, that's so, like, it's a marvelous thing that he was able to do it. I mean, he worked in a variety of approaches, but, you know, the, the simplification of how to focus, the close look. There's mm-hmm. something about the close look that really, really appeals to me and goes back again to that kind of idea of cage of nothing is boring. Yeah. Like, the more you look at something, the more interesting it gets. And I feel like as much as I'm reducing down the style and the, uh, the visual style in my work and the, and the, um, the language... I'm also reducing like what the work is about as time goes by. Like when I started out, I thought, you know, you're young. You think like, what is my career going to be? What am I going to write about? And you imagine a wide variety of stories. Well, now I'm, you know, I'm almost 60 and I'm like, they're kind of the same story every time. And part of it's not your choice, but another part of it is you do kind of like you follow a thread and Mm -hmm. the thread gets narrower and it gets more refined as time goes on. You work that same side of the street and you, you, you tighten it up more and more. And I, I have a real belief that this is the right way to go. Some people would be like, you need to shake it up. Um, I always remember like Joe Matt, another cartoonist, he wrote to Crumb once mm-hmm. and Crumb wrote him back. And he said about Joe's work, he said, uh, 
don't listen to people when they tell you you're doing the same thing over and over again. He said, it doesn't matter. Do what you think is right. Just always go a little deeper each time. Mm. Like that's absolutely perfect advice because really that is what you try to do. You try to like, you're getting it, you're, you're moving down in a kind of spiral to a, to a tighter point, to a sort of critical mass of some sort. And you're trying to get it better and tighter and more profound each time. And and I think absolutely. I I think with age, that's something that you again, you know, you try to connect more to the essential self and the essential elements of the language, mm-hmm. and how you want to use that language. I mean, you know, uh, and I think you're doing that in your work. And at the same time that you're doing that, it's become ever more richer, really, in in its impact on the audience. It reminds me of, you know, the stories about Hemingway um, continually trying to pare down his sentences, you know, yeah. uh, the same kind of idea, paring it down. So that it's one true sentence, you know, about which I think is a beautiful idea. I don't know, you know, how possible it is, but it's it's certainly a beautiful idea to try to get something to that is to the heart of the matter of the issue and, and make your choices. Not that they always have to be analytical choices or do they have to be contrived choices um they can be intuitive choices oh, yeah. but if they feel right they can they can you know work to great effect did you ever hear hemingway's what is it is like two line short story no <laughs> it's like, believe it see if i can do it i won't get it just right but it's like um it's um for sale baby shoes never worn <laughs> that's beautiful it's pretty good that's that is that is amazing yeah that is amazing because all of a sudden absolutely you know the world that comes from those few lines uh just is huge it's enormous Mm -hmm. Uh, you know and and uh, that's really interesting now you know there are a couple of things that before we close out our discussion because i'm sure your 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 time is short is running short um there are a couple of things that struck have struck me in your work and one of the things is Okay, we talked about good life and we talked about the use of Seth as a character. And maybe this is something you'll object to, but the idea of the man in the trench coat and the fedora is runs visually through all of your work. There, There is a, a man with a trench coat and a fedora throughout. And I know that that stands for you in particularly in, say, nothing last. You have a stamp, you know, for yeah. for yourself as the man in the trench coat and the fedora. And I'm wondering as I, I'm, you know, is that connected in any way to Simon? I mean, Simon is the man in the trench coat and the fedora, and he his trips um, to Dominion and elsewhere, are they reflective of, you know, maybe not real-world trips that you've made, but interior trips that you've made? Um, well, there's a lot of me and Simon, of course, without <laughs> a doubt. And I never tried to make Simon look like me, but he's got my iconography because he's got my hat and he's got my coat and he's got yeah. glasses. But Abe is as much me as Simon. Uh-huh. He's maybe just not quite as iconically uh, in the pro- one of the problems is I think I've reached a point where I don't know how to draw a man who doesn't have a fedora and a coat. On. <laughs> like literally, like, I mean, if I got an illustration job where I had to draw like a young family, I could do it. But my natural impulse to draw anyone is to draw that kind of, you know, standardized 50s guy in his coat and his, his uh, hat. And it's like my sketchbooks are full of them. And um, I'm, you know, it's like that's what I recognize as a symbol of a male. It feels funny to draw a man without putting a hat on him. And I think I may have just internalized it too much. That now it's like there are certainly cases where I'm drawing 
that kind of figure where it's not even meant to me to be me, but it reads as me. Um, it's become a little too iconic. It is like my own caricature. So well, it's it's there. It's there, yeah. And it's interesting to imagine. It reminds me in a little way, uh, and it's very very different. But you know, Clint Eastwood has his 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 famous doppelganger. You yeah. know, the the man with who with the guns who doesn't speak or whatever. The man with no name, and the man with no name shows up in his early films, but then also shows up in that wonderful and very powerful film. I think Unforgiven, mm-hmm. uh, where wherein you know he seems to resolve a lot of the storylines that came from the past. But anyway, it's, it struck me as kind of a very interesting. Uh, and well, the funny thing is, the cartoonists end up drawing like they—they they look like their drawings. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. true. I mean, like when I look at all my friends in cartooning, and even old cartoonists from the past, it's like there's something happens. Either you become like the cartoons, or the cartoons like reflect. You know, you can't help it. It's like the way they say, say people look like their dogs. Yeah, right. Yeah, something happens there. It's yeah. like interesting thing is somebody like Will Eisner. And when he was young, he looked like the spirit. But when he was old, he looked like Commissioner Dolan. Yes. But somewhere in there, he was always there. He was always there. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me wonder if Harry Lucy looked like Archie. But yeah, it, it, <laughs> it surprised me. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't be surprised me either. Well, and then the next thing I wanted to ask you, uh, and, and, you know, this is me now just maybe going crazy on this this book. But, OK, I wonder what kind of. Are you a religious man in any sense? And um, and is there am I mistaking what I would identify as Christian iconography throughout throughout Clyde fans? And it maybe not something that is overtly meant to be, but is borrowed from. Well, certainly, I don't think you could be any kind of like a graphic artist in this culture and not have your work be utterly informed by like the Christian aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a Christian, nor am I a religious person, but I would say that I am um, a mystic in some sense, mm-hmm. um, in that I have like severe doubts about the ideas of objective reality, and that I'm very, very obsessed with the afterlife mm-hmm. um, and dreams. Yeah. Um, this is something that Chester Brown and I share in common. One of the few things is when we get together to talk, Chester is a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, that neither of us has much that we can agree on in almost anything politically or even artistically, but we really share like this kind of innate sense that there's uh, a bigger reality. Oh yeah. Often. Not everybody feels that like um, my wife, Tanya doesn't feel that she right. is eagerly looking forward to the oblivion of the grave. Um, <laughs> but, but I am not. I mean, like we've been spending the last hour and a half talking about I, of self and identity. And it's like when you have invested so heavily in yourself, mm-hmm. there's something kind of horrifying about the idea that it will just wink out yeah. and cease to exist. I mean, um, it's complicated. I mean, just the other day I was thinking like I was feeling a kind of an incredible melancholy at the idea that like it doesn't matter how much work I do or diaries I write or anything you'll never get all that experience down in any transferable way. You'll mm-hmm. all be lost when you die. But then the next day I thought, well, who cares? I mean, a billion people have died. We lost it all already. What difference does it make if yours goes into the ether too? Mm-hmm. But there's something so powerful about the experience of being in li- alive, that interior world you live in, that does not feel just like a construct. 
It no. feels like there is a bigger reality. And when you try to nail it down, it does start to sound absurd. Like you get caught up in the details of like, can I possibly exist as an ego structure after my body is gone? You know, you can get involved in all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, it's not important, the details. It's the importance that there is a sense that there is a deeper reality you're involved in and that that reality is not defined by the here and now. Yeah. And and I I find that uh, that resonates with me as well. And it's interesting uh, that you've mentioned that about your wife, because my wife is similar in that sense, uh, um, although not eagerly looking forward to oblivion, but ne- nevertheless thinking that oblivion is what happens. I, I tend to have because I was raised Catholic um, that was imprinted upon me early on. I'm what is mm. called lapsed Catholic. You know, it's not something I believe in. And I don't believe, as Joseph Campbell identified it once, as a, in the personal God, you know, the idea of the guy with the big white beard. That's not part of my thing either. Yeah. But this idea that there's something post that that reality is much larger than in the individual and the individual experience and that this experience is only one manifestation of reality whatever quote unquote reality is yeah that there's something much more about this that for example there are you know animals that can see in the dark and we can't see in the dark or exactly. there are animals who are you know able to see different wavelengths of light and and i think that like li- life is so much broader than our experience here. Yeah. You know, our vision is is limited by biology. I but mean, I, look at this universe we live in. It doesn't make any sense that this would exist. No. And that we would be sitting on a rock in it somewhere. Yeah. And this gigantic, um, never-ending reality that goes on. And that's like, that is such a big and weird and strange thing that literally anything is possible. Yeah, I mean, you and I are talking across. This seems impossible. If we, yeah. you know, it, it it's so strange. But yeah, before we, that we're even talking, yeah, you know, that one species on this planet has developed this kind of language to communicate like this, and how strange and imperfect this language is. So you spend your whole life trying to master it to share your inner life with an outer reality. That's very very weird. <laughs> it makes no sense. Why? Why would that be? You know, if if you were to grabs, it's yeah, it is. But you know, before I leave this idea behind, uh, there there are certain specific elements that are in that book that strike me as as again perhaps perhaps having roots in Christian iconography. And there are three of them. There's the lighthouse. There's the beehive. And there's mm-hmm. the trees. Uh, and um, for me, the lighthouse might be something from Virginia Woolf. It might refer to um, it, it might, might refer to faith or illumination, illuminating, you know, what it means to be alive or to be human. Um, the beehive, it struck me as, you know, it has a relationship to this interpretation of it as um, I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, it's within um, the Mormon religion, this idea that the beehive represents the kingdom of God. And of course the trees strike me as as being reflective of of obviously Golgotha. Uh, does that resonate with you in any way? These are great interpretations, and they're the exact sort of thing that authors teach themselves not to say anything about. <laughs> Where you're like, I won't confirm or disconfirm anything. I love it. Great. But wait for the next book. If you're looking for Christian iconography. Okay. A lot more. 
Okay. Well, I, and I'm glad you won't confirm it because you know why? It takes the mystery out of it, and and I want the mystery to remain. And uh, as I do, in there's the a lot of stuff that you have a desire to explain, but you really know don't go there. Don't go there. Yeah, I think that's great, and maybe that's a good place to uh, <laughs> bring to a close. I think that sounds good. It sounds good, Seth. Boy, this has just been everything I could have hoped for in a in a discussion with you. I've really enjoyed this a great deal. Oh, that's great. I really enjoyed it as well. Oh, I'm glad. I'm very glad. Well, I'm going to stop the recording. Uh, I'll hit the stop button. Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial-free, but free to the listening public. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct rewards. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome, and your support is greatly appreciated. Thanks again, and that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I've listened to that a couple of times now, and, uh, you know, Seth is just such a great conversationalist, and I really enjoyed having him on the show. And uh, hope to do it again sometime soon. Uh, we've talked a little bit about that, so uh, maybe an all-peanuts episode. So uh, we'll keep that in mind. Anyway, uh, next time, how can you top Seth, right? How can you top? We'll, we won't try. We're going to go in a different direction. We're going to do something very different next time. We've got the man behind the Instagram sensation, Pinko Joe. Christopher Sparandio, uh, artist and cartoonist, uh, from Rice University in Texas, Houston, Texas, will be here next time to talk about stirring the pot, speaking truth to power, motivating people through humor and anger, uh, and retro comics on top of that. So there's a lot, a lot to look forward to next time with Pinko Joe, Christopher Sperandio. It's a very different episode, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Of course, that depends on your politics. <laughs> And I won't make any assumptions, but uh, be warned. <laughs> That's who's on the show next time. Until then, I'm going to ask for your money one more time. Head on over to Kickstarter at greenscreencomic.com. Check out the Kickstarter today. It's up until September 2nd. Uh, I think there are a lot of great rewards. I do think uh, it's a project I believe in. I think it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm hoping that it gets up and running because I've got a lot of great ideas for it, and uh, it's going to get even better as we move forward. I'm working on the next issue, and it'll be available as a Kickstarter in the winter of this year, the, the beginning of the new year. So uh, lots to look forward to there. Uh, I know I say it a lot, but I'll say it again. Be well. Be safe. If you haven't gotten vaccinated, do it, for gosh sakes. Get out there. Inoculate yourself from this terrible virus. It is wreaking, you know, it is taking a terrible toll across the country and the world. And uh, please be safe and careful and healthy and well. And the same to you and your loved ones. And uh, enjoy what remains of the summer. I will see you next time with Christopher Sperandio Pinko Joe. Until then, thanks for listening.